It's time to heed the call of the wild and seek the higher calling. Higher Calling is the voice of mountain and forest wildlife and is hosted by award-winning wildlife journalist and conservationist Chester Moore. Be ready for an increase in altitude and a relentless pursuit of the creatures that dwell there. Welcome to Higher Calling Wildlife. This is Chester Moore. If you've listened to the program, heck, if you've seen our logo, you know we love wild sheep, man. All the stuff in the mountains has always been inspiring, and wild sheep's at the top of that. And the person that I interviewed the very first time that I ever took sort of that deep dive on wild sheep is my now friend, Gray Thornton. He's president of the Wild Sheep Foundation. I'm here with him at the Hunt Fish Podcast Summit. And I can't wait to talk wild sheep. How are you doing, Gray? I'm doing great, Chester. It's great to be uh, here with you and, and a bunch of podcasters. We've had a fabulous time here at the Warren Ranch in Texas. And I just appreciate the opportunity to be here. Appreciate the invitation. Been, yes. a, been a great time with great people. We all share the same passion yes, for sir. wildlife, wild places, wild things. And mm -hmm. uh, it's just been a great time. The mission statement of the Wild Sheep Foundation is to put and keep wild sheep on the mountain. What does that mean in like reality? And that <laughs> sounds like one thing, but what does that mean in reality? You know, when uh, when Lewis and Clark uh, made their way west uh, in 1800, uh, wild sheep or bighorn sheep in particular were one, yeah. one of the most numerous animals they came across. Mm -hmm. uh, for a variety of reasons, we can get into that. They plummeted. Uh, and unlike some of the species that we enjoy abundance today, white-tailed deer, turkey, ducks, mm. geese, elk, pronghorn, uh, wild sheep haven't fared so well. Mm -hmm. uh, they actually had their all-time lows in the late 1960s, Chester, mid-1970s, from about a million to two million, and no one really knows sure. in, in 1800, but let's, let's say there was a million bighorn sheep in North America in 1800. We dropped to 25,000, uh, and not too long ago. I mean, yeah. this, you know, we're talking the mid-70s. So the, the purpose of the Wild Sheep Foundation at that time, we were called the Foundation for North American Wild Sheep, yep. was to put sheep on the mountain. Mm -hmm. And we did, and others did, uh, in partnership with our chapters and our affiliates and great state agencies, provincial agencies, tribal agencies, territorial agencies. We've put sheep back on the mountain. Mm -hmm. uh, bighorn sheep populations have grown threefold to 85,000 now in North America, a far sure. cry from a million, but we've put keep, uh, sheep on the mountain. Um, sadly, what took them off the mountain, uh, certainly some overharvest, but primarily disease from domestic stock brought mm -hmm. into their domain, um, had pulled them off, had taken them off, all age die-offs, uh, you know, just loss of habitat, uh, competition for their, for their forage, um, decimated these wild sheep populations. So as we put them on the mountain, we also realized we better keep them there. Yeah. And so we do that with a lot of hard work, a lot of dollars, uh, a lot of advocacy, mm -hmm. uh, and a lot of programs that, uh, that we can talk about today. Yeah, typically putting sheep on the mountain means translocation. Exactly. Can you go through like uh, kind of the process of a translocation? That's it's a great question, it's, and it's arguably one of the most sexy things we do in wildlife conservation. I mean, can you imagine? 
getting your hands on the pinnacle species in North America, a wild sheep ram. Yeah. Uh, typically, that you know it can be done with drop nets if, if they're in a, an area that you can put a drop net. But typically, Chester, it's done with a helicopter. Yeah. And you've got net gunners uh, hanging out the door of a helicopter at unbelievable low altitudes, dangerous conditions, uh, shooting a net over a running wild sheep, bighorn sheep, um, jumping out of the helicopter, uh, often if it's still hovering a few feet off the ground, and that those guys are the muggers, and they jump <laughs> off the helicopter, run over this sheep that's mm-hmm. entangled in a net, mm-hmm. blindfold it, hobble it, take off the net. Then um, typically, once they're blindfolded and hobbled, they can pull them off, yep. uh, pull off the net, hang them from the helicopter, bring them down to a, a relay station and a testing station. There we do some veterinary work. Yeah. Nasal swabs, throat swabs. Uh, you can even do ultrasound if it's a U to see if they're pregnant. Yeah. Uh, blood samples, uh, fecal samples, um, always watching their temperature. Then they're translocated, sometimes by helicopter, sometimes and oftentimes put in a double-decker horse trailer yep. uh, and hauled to another location and then released. So an unbelievable experience. You know, you actually get to handle a wild sheep live, uh, wrestle it if you, if you can, uh, and then release it into a new area. So it, it, it has been done about, 20, well, about 1,200 times with about 22,000, 24,000 bighorn sheep moved in North America since the 1940s. So it has been the way, as you pointed out, that we took surplus population from some locations, mm-hmm. translocated them to areas where they were extirpated, yeah. and reestablished populations. I got to go to a bighorn sheep capture part at Elephant Mountain Wildlife Management area. I didn't get to watch the shooting of the cannon gun, but I got to watch coming off the mountain with the blindfolds and the tethers. And one of the young ladies that we work with in our outreach got to participate. Like the apex experience. I mean, it's it's unbelievable. But that's kind of that stuff that you know maybe inspires people so much. I mean, we can put money into something like the Wild Sheep Foundation, the Texas Bighorn Society, and we're helping make that happen. Right. But really, you've kind of got that down. The harder part's the keeping on the mountain. Right? You bet. You yeah. bet. So let's talk about the disease aspect first. Yeah, the same the same pathogens that took them off are, are still on the landscape. Um, after millions of dollars in research, and Wild Sheep Foundation is the primary funder of that research, after millions of dollars in research, a lot of trial and error, um, bottom line, the, the current science... Uh, and conventional wisdom is that there's a pathogen called Mycoplasma ovipneumoniae, or the, the easy one is Imovi or Movi. Um, and what that is, Chester, is a setup agent. Uh, in the trachea of a wild sheep, like mm. a human, we have cilia, those little fibers, the yeah. little hair-like deals that help mm. you cough up uh, things that are bothering you. Mm-hmm. You know, when we cough up some phlegm or, you know, cough up something, it, it is typically something that our respiratory system does not want in our lungs. Mm-hmm. Well, if those cilia lay down... Other bugs can get in, and that's mm-hmm. exactly what happens to, to wild sheep. Mm-hmm. with If they are MOV positive, it can attack that cilia, lay them down. Then they're susceptible to all sorts of other bugs that mm-hmm. can come in. And typically, it's a mnemonic response. Yeah. They get pneumonia. 
uh, in, in the areas that they live, uh, high altitude in some cases, but tough areas. They need strong lungs. They're coughing. They're snotty. And they can tip over and die. And their lungs are just, you know, a gelatin of mush. So, you know, that's the bad picture. Mm -hmm. uh, the good news is, mm -hmm. uh, through work of the Wild Sheep Foundation, our chapters and affiliates, uh, agencies, and, and now even the USDA, we're working with domestic sheep producers mm -hmm. uh, on separation strategies. Yeah. Um, we've certainly looked into, uh, you know, various prophylactics. That's a, that's a difficult mm -hmm. uh, process. I mean, there's an ethical concern. I mean... You know, and I've been asked often, well, don't, you know, why don't we just vaccinate these wild sheep? Well, okay. You know, first of all, it's tough to get your hands on them. Yeah. Um, second of all, I think there's an ethical question there mm -hmm. of why are we vaccinating something against a domesticated animal that we handle all the time? So I would like to see us find some sort of way mm -hmm. to eliminate the pathogen in domestic sheep. Yeah. And maybe that's possible. The challenge there, though, is once... This MOV's in a wild sheep population. Mm -hmm. Bighorn sheep can be a vector. You know, some of them don't die. Some yeah. of them become the typhoid Mary. You know, it's it's frightening to think about that because you mentioned like in the seventies at the low point and Fanaz was started and it being a wild sheep foundation. You know, Texas was kind of you know we had eliminated pretty much sheep, but that wasn't so much of a factor here. We've recently had that pop up in Texas. You bet. And then the habitat everywhere has degraded I mean across North America so to me part of that triumph of tripling the population is not only tripling the population it's been done in the face of unprecedented habitat loss you bet and you know if you look at just desert sheep you know yep. look at where we look at where we build cities and homes in the desert typically as close to water yep. as we can mm -hmm. well what are we then displacing well potentially wild sheep and other wildlife mm -hmm. so you know if you look at bringing back desert bighorn sheep a great uh, great tool there is putting water for wildlife yep. you know texas has got such a great story on mm -hmm. that though yeah. i mean i think the last bighorn sheep desert bighorn sheep was taken in the six and the 50s um and up until about five years ago there were about 2,000 desert bighorn sheep in texas mm -hmm. and that is a historical high um sadly and the the hypothesis is it's some domestic goats that yep. snuck over from mexico yep. got into our bighorn population they got a movie and we've had a die-off so it's a challenge texas parks and wildlife is lurk, looking you know and working on it uh wild sheep foundation our partner texas bighorn society we're gonna we're gonna raise the money to do what it takes to bring those numbers back Absolutely, because those guys in Parks and Wildlife, Clay Brewer, who just, you know, retired from you guys, basically, yeah. was the guy kind of kick-started the modern era of bighorn sheep uh, conservation in Texas. Incredible success story, but there's always those, it seems like sheep have a success and then a setback. Mm. Success, setback. We're like elk or whitetails, a lot of stuff, success, and they just kind of manage it. You know, uh, that is such a frustrating thing for wild sheep managers and biologists. I, I've got Kevin Hurley that, that also works for the Wild Sheep Foundation. You know, we've got, we had Clay Brewer, and God bless him, he just retired for the second time, uh, <laughs> April 1st. We're, we're sorry to see him go, and sure. I know he's uh, sitting on his porch in Rochelle, <laughs> Texas, drinking a cold beer, watching the windmill go, and God bless you for it, brother. 
Uh, but we've got Kevin Hurley, 30-plus uh, years with Wyoming Game and Fish. We've got Kurt Alt, 30-plus uh, years with Montana Fish, Wildlife, and Parks. Uh, and Kevin Hurley said something years ago, and he says, you know, as crazy as it is with these tough bighorn sheep, you know, they're born looking for a place to die. Wow. And, I mean, that's, you know, it, that, it's, it's kind of a sarcastic sure. comment, obviously, but there's some truth to that, Chester, and, mm-hmm. and that is what's so challenging so frustrating is you see you know you seem to find what you think might even be the silver bullet yeah or might be the nugget of good news and then there's some other challenge um you know and 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 wild sheep and all wildlife face an enormous amount of challenges you know not to get political and i won't because there's (laughs) politics on climate change but yeah you know the 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 climate is changing. Of course, it has been changing for millennia. Um, But wild sheep are facing challenges on there, too. You know, whether it is, um, you know, periodic droughts, uh, which which in many of the Southwest we are in. Uh, Texas is in in one right now, a, a devastating drought. Um, we'll come out of it eventually, we know, but those wildlife populations suffer during that. Mm-hmm. Um, almost the exact opposite, we've had super heavy snowfalls for two years up in some of the Alaskan ranges, mm-hmm. and then bizarre warming, and then just you know devastating freezes. Mm-hmm. So what you're having is high snow load, mm-hmm. then a melt creates water, or, you know, mm-hmm. um, watery snow, yeah. then a super hard freeze, you get ice shelves, if you will, yeah. that are covering up the forage for wild sheep on mountains. Um, and it's been devastating to doll sheep. There's some areas in Alaska, we've just in the last two seasons lost 70% of the population. So, wow. you know, uh, doll sheep in Alaska were doing so well. Yeah. And boom, two years, you've got a, you know, you got a downward tr- trend you know i'm an optimist you know god uh, god has, has uh, done some wonderful things on uh, on this earth and one thing that he has done is allowed the earth to heal and yep. if we work uh, with that grace and allow those uh, those critters the space the time to heal they'll come back yeah i think it's uh maybe more than any other mammal in north america with wild sheep it's looking at the big picture in long term, but also focusing on the regional and local level. You bet. You know, because you, if you if you just focus on little stuff, you'll be depressed. Oh. Uh, you know, but if you get go and say, okay, we look at the long term, but there's this thing here we can fix in this part of Nevada. Right now, we can help put water there, and that will save sheep there. You bet. You bet. Whether it's emergency water hauls, you know, we put all these guzzlers in the desert, but if there's no rain, you know, that rain needs to fall on top of an apron to go into a gutter, to go into a tank, to then feed the guzzler and the drinker. Uh, If there's no rain, we have to helicopter water in by the bucket load and dump it on top of that, that apron. So that in itself is an expensive process but a critical tool to bring water to wildlife but you know there there are nuggets of good news you know we were talking about disease Mm -hmm. and a researcher dr francis kassir um out of out of idaho uh a protege of of dr tom besser um started doing work on looking at these diseased sheep populations, Mm -hmm. analyzing them, and she started to to hypothesize that, 
you know, there appears to be these typhoid Marys that for whatever reason don't die mm-hmm. from a, a pneumonic event, yeah. um, but appear to be passing it on. And uh, her hypothesis, or hypothesis is, is, is born fruit, and she has developed a program called Test and Remove. Yeah. And she has reported in Hell's Canyon... Where there has Idaho, been, right? it's 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 in Idaho, Washington, and Oregon. Okay. So it's a tri-state area. Mm-hmm. Uh, she is now reporting that the Hell's Canyon complex is MOV-free. Mm-hmm. What they've done, Chester, is they have identified some, uh, typically a ewe, it might be a little ram that uh, looks like it may be ill, or they just test as many as possible. Um, Dart them, net them, you know, whatever, whatever they need to do, do a, uh, a PCR test, not unlike what we're getting for COVID. Yeah. Um, radio collar those sheep, and if they test positive, go back and lethally remove them. Wow. Um, you know, we call it stop and frisk or test and remove, <laughs> but you know what? It's worked, and wow. it's worked in Hell's Canyon. We're now using that same process in, uh, in some of the canyons on the Snake River. And in Montana, where Wild Sheep Foundation is headquartered, we're doing it in the highlands. There's a population that's just struggled, mm-hmm. and uh, the biologist there with Fish, Wildlife, and Parks is using that same uh, same protocol, saying, you know what? Let's see if we can find those that are MOV positive, remove them, and see if we can get recruitment back up. And then maybe we can augment the population with another trap and transplant and, and build that population back up. You know, one of the localized issues I saw recently, you guys reported on, was the removal of some mountain lions yes. on an island. Yeah. Tell us about that. Wild Horse Island is in Flathead Lake. It's mm-hmm. up in, uh, in northwest Montana, and it has been a, a nursery herd, so to speak. It's a state park, okay. uh, but the world record bighorn sheep uh, died of supposedly natural causes. Maybe it was a, a lion kill yeah. um, on that island. But that island has you know, some, some sheep were originally translocated on it. Mm-hmm. It's got a rather temperate climate, mm-hmm. incredible grass, mm-hmm. and at the time, no predators. And so there have been 70, 80, 90 sheep taken off that mount, that, uh, that island. But of late, we started to see challenges to yeah. that. Uh, we had removed, um, I think it was 29 bighorns from Wild Horse, put them back in the Tendoys range. There was a plan to bring another 26 or so off the island. Did a survey of the, the sheep. Population was down. What did they find? Uh, I think it was at least three mountain lions had either swam to the island or came across on a snow or ice bridge and were hammering the bighorn sheep. Um, That's a sensitive issue. It's in a state park within a, a native reservation. So with work of, you know, the native wildlife or, or the, you know, the, the First Nation Wildlife Department, Montana Fish, Wildlife and Parks, fortunately we lethally removed three lions and I think uh, the sheep are going to benefit. Absolutely. I mean, um, there are studies that show that mountain lions can become sheep killing specialists. Absolutely. Areas, you know, 
that they'll pick out something they're good at and go, okay, we're going to stick with this. And, of course, if they're on an island for a mountain lion, that's kind of like shooting fish in a barrel. You got it. You know, there's a biologist out of New Mexico, Eric Rominger, and, and he's been kind of one of the foremost on identifying um, mountain lion predation as a, as a significant factor in decline or, or at least, you know, and also repatriation of, of desert bighorns in particular. And he's found exactly that. You've got uh, specialist cats. You yeah. know, they... Uh, you know, somebody may really like Italian food. Well, these these mountain lions really like, like bighorn sheep. So yeah. you take those out, mm-hmm. uh, it's very beneficial to the wild sheep population. This is Chester Moore, and I want to talk to you about something near and dear to my heart. You know, it's really encouraging to see a ramping up of conservation awareness among sportsmen over the last few years. It's not just because I've been talking about this on the show. We're seeing it everywhere, and that's a good thing. When it comes to new policies, ones that could affect the things sportsmen care about, our policymakers know they better check in with the Wild Sheep Foundation and see what they have to say. That's what I call backing the right horse. Membership is only 45 bucks a year. It's not only about business, this is a fun outfit to be a part of. Learn more at wildsheepfoundation.org. That's wildsheepfoundation.org. Now, of course, predator control is controversial, but one of the things that really is, and probably the most controversial thing in the, in the wildlife realm right now, is the whole idea of like state or federal control. You'll have issues like wolf reintroduction. They met the goal, you know, they met their points they wanted to make. It's supposed to go over to the states. Some of that's not happening. Grizzly bears, you bet. right now, that's going on in uh, Montana, the Yellowstone region. How frustrating is it when you're dealing with a scientific wildlife issue where a court gets involved and they use anything but science? Well, you know, that's, that's something that we've been dealing with the last two years of those that claim that, uh, you know, we're, we're following science are often the ones that are, uh, you know, furthest from it. Yep. Um, you know, in the, in the wild sheep world, uh, that frustration level is on the federal control of the lands that most wild sheep live. So, yeah, yeah. you know, the North American Wildlife Conservation Model uh, has, uh, you know, evolved into one where states, as you pointed out, or, or provinces control the wildlife. However, it's held in public trust, and then you have uh, either federally protected species or migratory species, mm-hmm. you know, where grizzly bear, wolves, federally protected. So extremely frustrating yeah. to be living in a state like Montana or Wyoming or Idaho um, and folks in New York City are telling us what to do with wildlife. You know, yeah. we'd, we'd be happy to send a bunch of wolves to Central Park. You know, but trust me. That would be a great reality show. It, it would be a great, you know, <laughs> just a, a funny one. Uh, uh, a couple of years back, the Wyoming legislature almost as a, well, as a joke, but kind of a shot across the bow, passed legislation saying that we would ship, this is, you know, my, my friends in Wyoming, they would ship problem grizzly bears to california so (laughs) i got a kick out of it obviously obviously it didn't happen but you know the challenges that that we uh have in the wild sheep community is um policies on federal lands where most wild sheep reside Mm -hmm. you know texas obviously 98 percent privately held different different dynamic here and it's been you know a fabulous dynamic uh, in all in all frankness but you know for most other other states it's it's public land it's it's typically for 
Forest Service, sometimes BLM. And so, you know, we've got we've got to work with those federal land managers uh, on policies that work for bighorn sheep, uh, or you know, up in the north in in Alaska for doll sheep. Um, but it can be a challenge, you know, even 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 wilderness. Yeah. You know, we were talking about a trap and transplant. Yeah. Well, wilderness is a great concept, but a legal definition of wilderness mm -hmm. can prevent us from the intensive management that's required to bring wild sheep back. Sure. What do we do? Well, we fly into an area. We land in an area. We land or fly into an area where mo no motor motorized or wheeled access is allowed. Mm -hmm. Can we fly in the area? Mm -hmm. Oftentimes not. So um, where wilderness may sound like a great panacea, it's often an impediment to the intensive management that we need to do to bring wild sheep numbers back. And that's a really interesting point because that gets into fire control. And we just spent time out in Colorado last summer at this mega fire that had happened the year before in near Estes Park, right in primo sheep habitat, primo elk habitat. And fire is wonderful for the landscape, controlled fire. But when you have these large yields of fuel because of overgrowth, because of wilderness designations and things like this, it just makes the fires where it's deadly to everything. You bet. I mean, you know, 100 years of fire suppression has given us the problems that we have today, or at least yeah. added to. Yeah. And so, yes, I mean, uh, and, and, you know, that's interesting in its own right, because as you pointed out, um, fire is a great friend of, of, of wild sheep. You know, what it's doing is it's clearing out, you know, we've got conifer encroachment in the north. Yeah. Um, which, you know, Wild sheep are, you know, they've they've got a good sense of smell, but you know they are they're they've got fabulous sense of sight. Yeah, you know, visual animal. You know, visual. seven seven power or so binocular like yeah, sight. Yeah. So they need they need escape cover and they need terrain that they can see. They can see the predators coming. Yeah. You know that conifer encroachment is is causing challenges in the north for that exact reason. It's removing some of their ability to see predators. Mm -hmm. um, so fire is very helpful there. Fire also creates new growth yeah um but devastating and catastrophic fires do not you know mm -hmm. so again policy you look at what's happened uh, you know there's been healthy forest initiatives in in the u.s uh would like to see more of it uh, you look at what the u.s forest service spends on fire suppression yeah um, vast majority of the budget is is controlling fires yeah. well you know we've almost done it to ourselves well we actually have done it to ourselves yeah I do a lot with wild turkeys, as you know, and that's a big part of turkey management as yeah. well is the same thing. They're very much the same way. They're a visual animal. They have to be able to escape and see and things like that. But kind of a silver lining. You don't want the mega, mega fire. But you said God built in mechanisms. And I was out in Los Alamos area in 2019 out uh, in some public land that because they had the, the biggest fire in New Mexico history, like five years later, finally, you know, things were coming back. But it was all of a sudden sheep habitat. You bet. So they stocked bighorns and you the bet. turkeys are thriving. You but bet. you could do the same thing, control it without destroying all of that. You bet. Yeah. You so bet. I think that's an important part of uh, management. And I think the fire thing just looks so scary for people who don't understand it. If they drive by a controlled burn, what's going on? We see forest fires in the news. You know, it's like a knee jerk reaction. 
Yeah, and you know there there are situations. I mean, there was a tragic situation about three four years ago where a controlled burn got out of control yep. in Colorado and burned yep. a, a you know a number of homes and mm-hmm. and and Chester we had a good number of uh, controlled burns that we had intended to fund with the Forest Service and as you can imagine they all got put in hold. Yeah, they got pulled. In. You know, we uh, we we've got monies for controlled burns up in Stone Sheep Habitat in British Columbia and the land managers are so scared to death right now. Yeah. of you know starting something that gets out of control and you know even as you pointed out in a, in a long-term look it's a good thing. Yeah. It's a good thing, you know, that, that, you know, I mean, listen to how we were, you know, we were educated, but almost propagandized on the Yellowstone fires. Yes. Um, You know, incredibly devastating. But if you go to Yellowstone National Park now, they're going to tell you how wonderful the fire was. Yeah. And don't be upset for all the burned trees. Now, again, that was a catastrophic fire. Yep. Too much under, under, you know, fuel load. Yep. Um, But again, long-term approach, 20 years, 30 years from now, 40 years from now, it's going to be beautiful. And it's great habitat for, for not only wild sheep but all wildlife yeah that's a good thing you and i were talking earlier talking about british columbia british columbia has changed a lot of their management of wildlife you know we have grizzly prohibitions and things there and that is pretty much the heart of stone sheep hunting that is the heart of stone sheep yep and the grizzly bear is the most studied animal in the province of British Columbia. Yeah. Uh, there has been more money spent on grizzly bear research, population studies, mm-hmm. uh, hair studies, everything you can possibly study about the grizzly bear. And there's 15 to 16,000 grizzly bears in British Columbia. There's an absolute ability to take a sustainable harvest. For sure. It was shut down, not on science, but on politics, public yeah. opinion. Mm-hmm. And, you know, animal rights activists and anti-hunters mm-hmm. uh, and others that uh, are opposed to, you know, grizzly bear hunting, um, and maybe even for noble reasons, um, were able to, not through science, but, you know, through public opinion and polls, to eliminate a tool for wildlife management and a great resource for that province for tourism. Um, you could make that argument on stone sheep. That's where and I was going. Is that I something am that's on the radar? terrified yeah. of the fact that we could lose stone sheep hunting with a stroke of a pen. Yeah. And if there's no hunting... Mm-hmm. There's no interest in stone sheep. Stone sheep are impacted by roads, yep. access, mm-hmm. resource extraction. Now, guess what? I drive a truck. Yep. Uh, you know, I'm not going to give up on fossil fuels. Sure. So I'm, you know, I'm a realist. Yep. Um, but you know, there's there's places that we can do extraction. There's places that we can't. Stone sheep habitat are, is very impacted from that. Yeah. Uh, what's what's the barrier sometimes mm-hmm. between that extraction or doing it wrong? Advocates for sheep hunting. And who are they? Outfitters, <laughs> guides, and those that hunt them. And so yeah. you eliminate those. Where where are the advocates? They're gone. Yeah, it's like uh, in the in the turkey side of things that I do. You know, the the only place I've seen endangered red cockaded woodpeckers were on stands of timber managed for turkeys. 
Nobody, there's not the National Red Cockaded Woodpecker Association. Right. You know, it has 200,000 members and raises all this money, but there is a National Wild Turkey Federation. You bet. And there's a Wild Sheep Foundation. You and bet. There's, a, there's the Canadian components and affiliates and chapters. And that gets me to like, you know, what you guys do at the Sheep Show and things like this. I wanted you to explain, let's just pretend no one has any idea about how the auction process and all this works. I went to the Sheep Show in 2020. Hope I get to go back next year. And it was amazing watching the auction, people bidding tags at, you know, tribal lands and provincial areas and in private lands and all these things. And uh, got dudes raising their hands, putting some coin down for some sheep <laughs> tags, right? Let's talk about where that sheep, that money goes. You know, these conservation permits or special permits or governor's tags are, are what you're, you're speaking of. And, and interesting enough, Chester, um, they can be controversial yeah. because, um, you know, I'm a regular guy. You're a regular yeah. guy. We're hardworking people. Uh, I somewhat doubt that you're going to be bidding $480,000 on a, on a Rocky Mountain Big Iron Teddy. I can assure you that I'm not going to be bidding. <laughs> Even if I won the Powerball. You know, $480,000. <laughs> yeah. But, but uh, Chester, this, this 2022 sheep convention, we had 11 new permit records. We raised about $5 million for wild sheep conservation for states. Mm -hmm provinces, tribes, territories by auctioning off 32 permits. Uh, the That's Wyoming nice. permit sold for $310,000. Wow. Know, the, 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 the bighorn sheep permit in, in Montana sold for $340,000. The, the Oregon permit that usually sells for 135 went for, I think it was 310 or 320. I mean, it was absolutely incredible uh, the the amount of money that was raised on you know 32 or so conservation tags, and uh, Chester, uh, 90 to 100 percent of that goes right back to the agency mm -hmm. for wild sheep conservation and restoration. In 2014, I had our conservation staff do a do a, a deep dive into yeah. you know how how relevant are those are those permits because they can be controversial. I mean, you know, for argument's sake, there's 100 tags in in Montana, and you're going to take one out for an auction and one out for a raffle. You know, well. Those, you know, now there's 98 tags that are available yeah. for the, you know, the, the lottery system. So, you know, there's those that advocate that, hey, you know, let's let's uh, let's put those two tags in the, the lottery and then maybe we got a better chance of winning it. Well, let me tell you what, you know, after looking at the research data from yeah. the um, Western Association of Fish and Wildlife Agencies, those are the states, provinces that have wild sheep, yep. many of them. 75%, it was like 74.0, you know, X, 75% of all agency conservation dollars came from either the sale of an auction tag or a raffle tag. Wow. So you know, let, let's look in 2014, I was blessed to take a bighorn sheep in Montana in our unlimited area. Now, you know, uh, you know, knock on your door, folks. There are three to five units in Montana that are called the unlimited areas. You are guaranteed a sheep tag. You want a sheep tag? You will get one. You're guaranteed a sheep tag. Unlimited tags, limited harvest. Most of the units have a harvest of two. 
success rates about two to three percent. So, yeah. you know, however, you want to hunt sheep, you can hunt sheep. Can hunt sheep. So, in 2013, we sold the uh, Rocky Mountain Bighorn Tag for Montana for $480,000. It is a record. It's, it has not been beaten. Uh, 2021, we sold it for, for 440. It almost almost beat it, and the guy would have gone to five. Um, but in 2014, the year after that tag sold, I bought, as a Wyoming resident, I bought a $750 bighorn sheep tag in the unlimited area in, in Montana. Yeah. By the grace of God, a lot of luck, a lot of hard work, but yeah. the grace of God and a lot of luck, mm -hmm. I was able to harvest a bighorn sheep. Wow. That same year, 20, 2014, the amount of money that was raised by Montana Fish, Wildlife, and Parks on the lottery system for bighorn sheep was about $130,000. So $130,000 comes yeah. in from, you know, from 120 tags. Yeah. And 480 comes out of one. So you can see the dynamic there. Yeah. You know, what, what's the moral of the story? Well, I look at it this way. You know, for those that are feeling that this kind of a, a funding model is controversial, I thank God for that crazy son of a gun me that too. was willing to spend $480,000 so a regular guy like me yeah. could for $750 go hunting wild sheep in Montana and, again, luckily get one. So, you know, it's a, it's a, it is a funding model that works. Um, it has some challenges to it. You know, you can imagine the pressure that's put on an agency and or the, you know, the, yeah. the guides when someone spends nearly a half a million dollars on the tag. Um, you know, we've got to be very cautious with that. Yeah. You know, laws are laws, rules are rules. Yeah. Hunting ethics more than anything are the way that we must go. So. Yeah. You still got to follow the rules, even though you paid the big bucks. I don't really see the point of arguing with that. I mean, if you take a few tags out of there and it's like, look, I mean, the, the numbers don't lie. And have you ever seen, uh, you said 75, about 75% mm -hmm. of the sheep money in America comes from these kinds of things, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, that's an astounding number. Uh, and it, it goes back to what you said earlier. Where would wild sheep be without their advocates? And who are their advocates? You know, Wild sheep hunters. There. So, you know, you're hearing about $480,000 tax. By the way, when I was at the, the auction, I made sure not to look in the eye of the guy that was taking the, <laughs> you know, I mean, no. But it, it was amazing. And then the year you did that with COVID where you did the virtual conference, me and my wife thought that was the greatest thing, watching it online and seeing that. And the, and the people so excited that, my God, they raised that much money for that tag in that state, you know, because reality is it requires money hard work and creativity to conserve wildlife you bet and that's that's very important points but uh i want to talk to you toward the end here about like how someone gets on the on-ramp to be a sheep conservationist but before that wild sheep foundation is also working in asia now you bet tell us some about your asia initiative you know we've, we've got a central asia initiative and and chester what we were asked quite frankly mm -hmm. you know um Kazakhstan, Tajikistan, Kyrgyzstan uh, had had seen some of the work that we've done. They looked at the funding model. I gave a presentation over at an IUCN meeting in Kyrgyzstan in 2018 mm -hmm. on what we do with these permits. My presentation was supposed to be 15 minutes, and this was done UN-like. Yeah. You know, we had we had trans you know translators, so yeah. it was being you know my English was being translated into Russian, wow, French, 
German. Wow. Um, and so as I'm giving this presentation, you got these translators in their box and everyone's wearing their little headphones that they can turn, you know, one, two, and three to get their, their, well, my 15 minute presentation went about 50 minutes with wow. the questions. Well, you had, you had individuals and, in, you know, agency or ministerial folks from, you know, Pakistan, Iran, mm -hmm. Kazakhstan, um, you know, every, every stand, but some, you know, uh, other Asia, you know, Central Asian countries looking at this going, holy smokes, you know, I mean, obviously, obviously the dollar signs yeah. mean a lot, but what we were able to do is say, okay, you have an incredible resource. Yeah. Why don't and and it's it's commercially utilized on sure. a sustainable basis, um, maybe sometimes not in the best way yeah. or maybe not the best science Jews. What we said is, why don't we pull off a few of these um, tags for some of the Argali or Ibex? Yep. We'll treat them as a conservation permit. We will sell it at our show. Yeah, we will direct that money back into government for a little bit of their program primarily conservation yeah. and and we're going to watch it and yeah. make sure that that you know the, the the funds are used in the right place yeah and equally important into community development programs you know so so the peoples that are living with the wildlife value that wildlife because mm -hmm. they see benefit from that wildlife so yeah. we took the same principles that we use in north north america brought them to central asia mm -hmm. and and that program has got wings it looks like we will very soon uh, obviously the situation in russia right now yeah. is causing some challenges sure but we may very soon see argali hunting open in a conservation basis in kazakhstan for the first time in 20 years so that's incredible it works you know argali if people listening don't know what they are they're the largest wild sheep in the world you got the altai argali i think's the biggest marco polo sheep mm -hmm. and you're talking about like marco polo sheep live exclusively at above about fourteen thousand feet yeah you can hunt them all the way up to seventeen eighteen thousand feet so yeah, I, uh, unbelievable. I'd, I'd be dead <laughs> i'd be dead i live at 14 feet elevation on the coast of texas but uh it's a it's a challenging animal we mentioned some climatic issues Marco Polo sheep have faced some of that. There's some studies out there about them having to come, you know, a little further down the mountain and that presenting some challenges. So it'd be great to have some of this research funding for these people to learn more about these, literally the apex wild sheep of the world. You bet. And, and you know, they're, they're seeing some of the same conflicts that we've had in North America. You got conflict and, and competition for forage uh, with domestic stock. Um, you know, one of the things we're interested in, and it's been hypothesized, is, you know, are there old world sheep and new world sheep? You know, the yeah. new world sheep would be the North American wild sheep that we have yeah. in, in, you know, the, the, this side of the mm -hmm. pond. Um, and, you know, our North American wild sheep, the Dolls, the Stones, the Rocky, and the Desert, came from an Argali. Yeah. You know, millions of years ago, coming across the land bridge, yep. populating down, and and evolving into what we have today. Well, um, why don't the Asian sheep have the same mnemonic response yeah. that our North American sheep? Is it that they have lived with domestic stock for? you know thousands of years I've where ours have yeah you know so th that's that's something that we'd yeah. like to find out so you know that's going to be exciting those are things we're going to going to research and um 
But it all takes money and it all takes, you know, people getting involved. And that's that's what the Wild Sheep Foundation is all about. And, and you know, although we have plenty of members that are not hunters, yeah. there is no doubt, Chester, that, you know, to, to you know, to harvest a wild sheep ram is something that so many of us aspire to. Mm-hmm. Um, and how do you do that? I mean, the, you know, the, the truth of the matter is it's it's a it's a limited resource. Yeah. Um, you know, look at uh, it's a classic market uh, force of, you know, supply and demand. Limited supply, high demand, increase, you know, increases prices. Yeah. Um, and that's what we're seeing in the wild sheep world. Um, interesting enough, we're also, though, seeing a great growth in interest in wild sheep hunting. Yeah. You know, that aspirational hunter. I mean, you look at the gear that we have today, the clothing, the, you know, the, the, the tools that, you know, range finders, range and, finders yeah, yeah. and rifles that can shoot at a thousand yards. You know, that's a whole other discussion. But, you know, the, there is an interest in that hardcore you know i call it almost the x games of hunting but that hardcore mountain hunter Mm -hmm. well with that increase of sheep hunters or at least even aspiring sheep hunters and not a supply that's that's you know keeping up with that demand uh, you know we've we've got challenges but there's ways to get around it you know, or ways, ways to at least play the game. Um, I recently sat in on a, on a seminar from our friends at hunting fool Mm -hmm. out of Utah and, and, you know, they had some, it could be depressing information, but you know, they're saying, Hey, look, if you look at the draws right now and the preference points and bonus points, uh, if you weren't in the game 30 years ago, you know, you're likely not going to benefit from a preference point system. Yeah. So, you know, but they, they know what they're doing. They know their business. So they go, hey, look at the states that have more of the random draws. And many states are moving towards that anyway. Yeah. Um, but they, I thought they were pretty clever because, you know, Wild Sheep Foundation has been offering raffle programs for yeah. sheep. I mean, we have our Lesson One Club. A uh, yes, great awesome. program where if you haven't taken a Wild Sheep Ram, you can join Wild Sheep Foundation for 45 bucks. Join the Lesson One Club, meaning you've had less, you know, you've taken Lesson One Sheep. Yep. Get a cool T-shirt. We put you into a drawing for typically three doll sheep hunts that we draw at a reception in Reno during our convention. This year, we're going to put you in a drawing for three doll sheep hunts, one desert big hunt, desert bighorn sheep Sweet. hunt, so four sheep. Plus, we're going to launch the new Less Than One Club V for veterans. So if you're a veteran, you know, you can, you know, you have the opportunity to get into five drawings, you know, for 25, 50 bucks. We have other raffles that that work. But, um, you know, and right now we're doing a program, Chester, that, you know, just in in, in kind of an appreciation of our membership. You join the Wild Sheep Foundation. You're in a drawing that we're going to draw on June 30th of this year. Uh, for a, a hunt with one of eight outfitters, your choice, in Northwest Territories, uh, one of the most pristine, magical places to hunt doll sheep, you know, of, of any of the, the doll sheep uh, range, um, with some of the finest guides and outfitters up there, and a, uh, a rock star of a sheep hunter, uh, a rock star of a man, and a great cinematographer and a photographer, a guy named Adam Foss, is going to join you on the hunt to film it. So, wow. you know, just for joining the Sheep Foundation, you might get lucky. And yeah. that's, that's the thing. You know, get involved. And kind of as a closing comment, 
you know, the dollars that you're putting into these organizations, whether it's National Wild Turkey Federation, Mule Deer Foundation, Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, Wild Sheep Foundation, Ducks Unlimited, you know, you're, you're spending your dollars helping organizations that are responsible for that resource. Yeah. And, you know, as you pointed out with a woodpecker, um, you know, game animals are charismatic megafauna. Yeah. And there is an advocacy group for everything that walks, slithers, or crawls that we can hunt. Mm -hmm. Why? Because we're passionate about it. Yep. And, uh, you know, we, uh, we keep things that we're passionate for. No doubt about it. I'm going to be doing a presentation tonight. And one of the things I'm going to mention is how I got into loving wild sheep as a kid. It was an image and something that kept with me my whole life. You know, I have things like that. And so if you love wild sheep or just love mountain wildlife, make sure and join the Wild Sheep Foundation, wildsheepfoundation.org. Also, you can get them on Facebook and there's an Instagram account. It's been awesome. And I want to thank you for what you and the organization do for wild sheep. Well, thank you, Chester. Thanks for the opportunity to be on the program. Thank you for your voice for wildlife conservation. Thank you for your voice for getting kids involved in the outdoors. Uh, you're a champion. You're a appreciate star. That. And uh, we just appreciate being uh, with you and your friend. Appreciate it, brother. This is Chester Moore, editor-in-chief of Texas Fishing Game, the oldest and largest outdoor magazine in Texas, and its sister website, fishgame.com. Between these two award-winning outlets, we cover everything outdoors in Texas and beyond. While we provide you with plenty of hook-and-bullet how-to information, we have committed to our resources to bringing you the most comprehensive coverage of wildlife, habitat, and environmental issues that we can. You can get this award-winning coverage by subscribing to the Texas Fishing Game Print Edition, six issues a year, by calling 800-725-1134. That's 800-725-1134 or going online to fishgame.com. You can also sign up for our three times per week e-newsletter to stay current on everything affecting fishing, hunting, camping, shooting, and enjoying the glorious great outdoors. You've been listening to The Higher Calling, hosted by the wildlife journalist Chester Moore. Contact him at chester at chestermoore.com. Follow him at the Chester Moore on Instagram and his blog at HigherCalling.net.